Uh, let me start. Uh, joy is the theme this morning, by the way. And starting that out, C.S. Lewis, uh, probably everybody here knows, but really he was a giant in the last century, right? He, um, his literature still is probably selling as well today as it ever has. Movies have been made of his books. He wrote his autobiography, and it's, uh, some people called it kind of a cheat because it wasn't a standard. It was sort of surprising what he included and what he didn't include. Very short. It's an easy read if you haven't read it. It's a great thing to start with. Um, but he called it Surprised by Joy. This was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and there was a serious element of that as well. Uh, Lewis had come to Christ late in life. And so, you know, he was basically, basically an atheist teaching at Oxford, and he's rubbing shoulders with some committed Christians, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and some others, and they're basically telling him uh, against his own view that Christianity and Christ is just one more myth. It's another fairy tale made up by the world. They turned that on its head and they said, well, no, maybe Christianity is the true myth from which other religious stories draw their true elements. And that was helpful to him, and he became a Christian, but it was late in life. And so on one hand, the title of his biography, his life story, Surprised by Joy, reflected the fact that he was surprised by joy in Christ late in life. That transformation for him had not occurred early. It had occurred late, and it was a surprise. The other thing, the tongue-in-cheek element was, uh, Joy Gresham became the woman that would become his wife, and she surprised him late in life as well. So for Lewis, joy as a surprise and sort of this late addition to life, those were key elements in his life story, primarily related to Christ, but also secondarily related to his wife. Joy had not been absent in his life, not entirely for sure, but maybe like some of us, he had had a difficult life. His father was well-to-do financially, so it wasn't finances, but his mom died when I think he was four years old. And this left a huge hole in his life for he and his brother. I think Warney was 10 and I think he was 4, something along that line. Anyway, not only did he lose his mother, but his father was a very quiet, reserved man. He could not draw close to his sons, and his sons grew up with that as a lack. That affected them the rest of their life. He also went to boarding school. That was typical back then. And boarding schools were not always a positive experience for the young men that went there. On top of all that, even after a, a rewarding tutoring experience, Lewis ends up in the trench warfare of World War I where he loses his best friend and then it was his own injuries that sent him home early from the war. So he also had an outlook as an atheist pretty much from his uh, teen years to the point of his conversion. And as an atheist, you certainly don't have much hope of joy there either. So after all that, Lewis found joy because he found Christ. He would later write this, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Heaven is serious about joy. So, if you guys wrote the, the story of your life today, if you just reflect on the key elements of your own life, would joy be part of the title? If, if someone wrote your life story for you, would joy be such a key element of your story or mine that people would think that joy needed to figure prominently in the story of your life or a description of your life? Last week, and we're winding down in an eight-week series here this morning, 
we were looking at Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and we said, you know, in the whole context of Luke chapter 2, that Jesus had come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, and yet both of those are hard to find more often than not. We said that for Jesus, this role of coming to the earth, remember God of very gods coming to the earth, limiting Himself in our humanity, and then ultimately bearing the sins of the world on the cross, What was it for Jesus as a man that enabled him to do that? And we said, well, from Hebrews 12 too, it was joy. It reads there, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was joy that enabled Jesus to face the horrors of the cross and go forward. You can bet that if we lack peace, Peace's cousin joy is going to be lacking also. The message this morning is basically that Jesus brings both. So we're going to be talking about joy. And I hope you have a study sheet because there's a lot of references this morning. I'm going to run through a bunch of those in order here. I'm going to start with some definitions of joy and then the description of what joy has meant in the lives of some folks through history. Dictionary.com defines joy this way. The emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. A keen pleasure. Elation. Webster's defines it this way. A very glad feeling. Happiness. A great pleasure or delight. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 famously says, that the kind of joy God gives is a joy that brings strength with it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Uh, this is from Paul in Romans fourteen seventeen. He was writing to the Romans about food, and they, they weren't sure what they should eat or not eat, what they should drink or not drink. And in that context, Paul said, the kingdom of God is not so much about what you eat or drink, but it's about righteousness and peace, and it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, don't worry so much about what you're eating or drinking. The kingdom of God in you, in your presence, is joy in the Holy Spirit. A Cripplegate blog is one of the two that I check daily, and Mike Riccardi is one of the regular writers on that. He wrote this last February. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he's quoting Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee's a well-known Christian academic and commentator. He says this of what Fee wrote. Gordon Fee hits the nail on the head when he writes, Joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the Gospel. It is the fruit of the Spirit in any truly Christian life, serving as primary evidence of the Spirit's presence. That's a bold statement. That joy is primary evidence of the presence of the Spirit of Christ in you and I. If that's true, or to the degree that it's true, how much or how fully are you and I characterized by the Spirit of Christ if joy is one of the key markers? He continues, he goes on to say that unmitigated, untrammeled joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. That joy is a distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. Would the people who know you and me, that you work with, go to school with, rub shoulders with, or neighbors with, people that know you, that interact with you, would they say joy is a consistent element in your life and mine? 
Uh, from the book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky has the main character in that story called Alyosha. And, and in that story, Alyosha is referring to the miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2 where he, met, he reproduced wine at the wedding in Cana. And listen to his words about this. Through this character, Dostoevsky says, Christ visited men's joy when He worked His first miracle. He helped men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. He did not come down just for His great and awful deed, the cross, but His heart was also open to the simple, artless merrymaking of some uncouth but guileless beings who lovingly invited Him to their poor marriage feast. That Jesus wasn't just there to perform a miracle. He was there to increase their joy. Augustine of Hippo is certainly one of the giants of the faith, especially early in the years of the church. His story, uh, before he came to Christ, was one of the pursuit of pleasures, the pleasures the world had to give. And if you read his story and his biography, uh, Augustine had this challenge. He heard the gospel and he knew Christians. His trouble was he was so entrenched in seeking the pleasures, generally immoral pleasures in this world, that he was afraid to give them up and become a Christian. He saw it as a loss. If I become a Christian, if I become a follower of Christ, I lose those elements of joy in my life. But he had a very different take after he embraced Christ. And listen to his words. He said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Speaking to God, he says, You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. What Augustine found was the opposite of his expectation. He thought, I'm going to embrace Christ and lose joy. And what he found was absolutely the opposite. That I've lost what he, lost what he called fruitless joys. If you guys have had this, this uh, experience in your own life, I pursue things that I think are going to give me life, and I find that they don't. But I get Christ, and I find all of a sudden, all the things that I tried to use to fill me up, they couldn't, but I get all of that in Christ in a richer, better, purer way. That's what Augustine found. He got joy when he got Jesus. George Whitfield was the, uh, one of the greatest evangelists, certainly in the Western church's history. He was part of the Great Awakenings in colonial America. He said, I was delivered from the burden that had so heavily suppressed me. The spirit of mourning was taken from me and I knew what it was to truly rejoice in God my Savior, said Whitfield. I found joy when I found Christ. This is the last of this series, Behold Your God. And if you've missed these before, if this is your first Sunday, the theme of the series was simply this, that when we behold God, we will become more like Him. That there's a theme or a principle in Scripture that says, we become like the object of our worship. So that if we can see God more fully as He is, if our hearts are drawn to Him in worship, we'll become more like Him. And that's His will for your life and mine if you're a Christian. This is absolutely plain. This is from Romans 8.29. 
So if I say generally as a Christian, what's God's will for my life and yours? Romans 8.29 tells me. This isn't the specifics. Specifics for you and me. But generally, if we're Christians, this is God's goal, His work in your life and mine. Romans 8.29 Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's will for your life and mine, recognizing all the individual attributes and calls God has for each one of us, generally God's goal for your life and mine is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And one of the key elements of the image of Jesus Christ, either by His example or by His absolute being as God, is joy. And so our possession or experience of that quality of joy is a key indicator of the amount or the degree or the lack of transformation into the image of God in Christ. If you go down just a few verses there in Romans 8, verse 32 says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So you got this image. God from heaven looks down on our estate and says we need help. And He determines to send Jesus to fix our broken estate. And Jesus, this is the Gospel, God the Son comes down on earth, born in our humanity, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross for our sins, rises from the dead for our justification, ascends into heaven where He intercedes for you and I today. That's mind-blowing all on its own. And as He waits for our great reunion with Him, either in our going to heaven through death or in His call to us at the rapture of the church, Meanwhile, He is giving us His joy. That's a key element of what God is up to in your life and mine today. My hope when we leave here this morning is just this. Either our present experience of the joy of Christ is heightened and increased, or when we leave here, that's what we're thinking about. That's what we're meditating on, especially as this is the last Sunday before Christmas. And if we're going to have joy any time of year, Christmas certainly should be there. We're going to look at this in a few different veins. The first is this, that Jesus, Jesus in His incarnation, in the birth, Jesus brings joy with Him. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 2. We'll read this famous passage. This was famous before Charlie Brown's Christmas Carol made it more famous. But this is Luke 2, starting at verse 8. Luke recording the birth of Jesus. It says, "...and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night." And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I want to focus just on two phrases there, good news of great joy. The Greek for good news is just the word that we get evangelized from. Uh, To evangelize is to share, literally, good news. So the angel says, here is good news with the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem. And the good news is of great joy. Not a little, but a lot. The Greek is mega. Mega kara. Mega charis. Mega kara. Mega joy. So God says through the angels, God is supersizing joy on earth in the coming of Jesus the Son. The good news is there's great joy, and the great joy is God the Son on earth. 
The Christmas story, the story of the incarnation is one of good news and great joy. Think for a minute too the the earth that this good news comes into. Think of the words from O Holy Night. Uh, They say in part, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. You know, if you think of the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, God had promised Israel a Messiah. And that nation longed for and waited for a Messiah who would come and bring redemption. But also, which one of us and what person in time hasn't experienced a longing for something greater than they knew? Or which one of us hasn't longed for something better than our own sins, the fruit of our own sins in our own life? Or when we see the effect of our sin on the people around us, people we love, or the sins of others around us on us? Sin and error pining, that's the history of the world. That's the world Jesus is born into. On top of that, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is one of my favorite authors and his book, New Testament History, is a very easy read. And in reading that, you get a sense of how confused the world was when Jesus was born into the world. What, a, what an extreme time in history it was. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem when Israel is under Roman rule and heavy taxation And Jewish religious politics made ours look like children playing at politics. The internal strife and division between the religious parties in Jesus' own day. And that's the world into which God sends His Son and joy with Him. Psalm 16.11 also says this. Think about this related to Jesus joining us. David said to God, You make known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy. So in other words, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. When Jesus is born on the earth, fullness of joy arrives. Mega joy, supersized joy arrives in Jesus' birth on the earth. So Jesus brings joy with Him. But also guys, Jesus intends joy for us. I think our expectations are set way way too low on this, that our experience of Christ and what He is meant to mean in us is simply set way, way too low. Jesus is joy. His arrival on the earth is joy present on the earth. But Jesus intends His own to experience joy and not a little, a mega cup, a supersized serving, if you will, of joy. Listen to this. This this again, this is on your study sheet and I'll just ramble through these. John 15.11, and a few of these are from John's Gospel. The last night, Jesus is with His disciples before He suffers, and He's talking big time about joy. He says to them, These things I've spoken to you so that My joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Among His last messages to them before His death, He says, I want you to have joy and not a little. I want it to be full, overflowing. Later in John 16.24, he says, he's encouraging them to pray in his name. And he says, up to this time you haven't asked anything in my name. And asking things in Jesus' name means asking the things Jesus would ask for. It doesn't mean in Jesus' name as a mantra at the end of our request. It's as Jesus would ask. So he says, when you pray in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And think about this for just a second. One of our encouragements to pray is that when God answers that prayer in Jesus' name, our joy will be increased. 
that we will be part of what God was doing. We will see God answer our prayers. And when we see that happen, our joy will increase through answered prayer, through seeing God answer prayer. I hope everybody's had the experience where you've prayed for someone or something for a long period of time. And you see that God answered that prayer. And don't you have this sense of elation? And it's not necessarily that you got something. It's not that I necessarily got anything specific for me. It doesn't have to be about me. But that when I prayed and I saw God answer, my joy increases. Jesus said that's what He wants for us. John 17.13, when Jesus prayed, He said, I speak these things in the world that they have that excuse me that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When Jesus prays to the Father, he's praying that our joy would be fulfilled. It would be overflowing joy. If you shift to Paul's writings in Colossians 1:11, he said this, "May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And when I read that verse that far, it's like, okay, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to endure. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to keep going in the same direction. But Paul doesn't end there. He says, endurance and patience with joy. That it's joy that enables me to have endurance and patience. Joy is what gets me there. In Romans 15:13, he said this, his prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If I'm going to have Christian hope, I need Christ's joy. His joy strengthens my apprehension of His promises. That's a biblical definition of hope. Hope simply means something that God promised hasn't occurred yet. Joy strengthens my ability to count on God's promises being fulfilled. Galatians 5.22, when Paul tells us, what the Spirit of Christ in us looks like. He says, it's love, and then it's joy, and then it's peace. Guys, if we want just the acid test, you know, bottom line, transformation. How's Christ's transformation in me going on? If I look at the list of fruits in Galatians 5, that's an acid test for transformation. Because the Spirit of Christ is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're focusing on joy this morning, but if you want an acid test of transformation, that's it. Jesus' life in me looks like these things. The second in that list is joy. And last one, 1 Peter 1.8. Peter wrote to early Christians and he said this, Though you have not seen Him, Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And the fruit of that believing in Jesus is that you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is a verse that when I've read in the past, and I said, Lord, I don't think that expresses my experience. It was a convicting verse that that should be my experience. That if we believe in Jesus, joy should be the natural fruit of that. Faith in Christ should mean joy in and from Christ. So, in the process of transformation, Jesus intends for us in His own image, joy is key. If we as Christians are living lives that aren't characterized by joy, we can say it's a lack of transformation. The transformation God wants us to have. Listen to this from Richard Foster. 
He says, joy, not grit. Not patience, not endurance, not sticking it out long term. Joy, not grit, is the hallmark of holy obedience. We need to be lighthearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. It is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. Joy is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. The joyful Christian is one who is not focused on himself. So a key element of the good news of the incarnation and the gospel is that in Christ, we have, or certainly we have the ability to have joy in its fullness. That should be our experience. So Jesus brings joy. Jesus intends joy for us. The last key point for me this morning is God's gift is God's joy. God's gift to us in Christ is God's joy. Go back to Romans 8.32 for just a second. Listen to that verse again. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And, and Paul is making a logical sequence here. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God is willing to do this, the greater, then He's willing to do this, the lesser. So if God would give us His Son... Paul says, He'll give you anything. If He'll give you Jesus, He'll give you anything. If God wouldn't withhold His own Son in the cause of our redemption, then He wouldn't withhold any good thing from us. Guys, this means that Jesus is what and who the Father values above all else. That Jesus is the Father's chief delight and the Father's chief joy. And in giving Jesus for our redemption, the Father was giving us His own chief joy. If we've received Christ, we have received heaven's greatest treasure of joy. Because the omnipotent Father God says, I treasure, I delight in, I take joy in nothing greater than my Son. So that when God gives us Jesus the Son, He is giving us the greatest repository of delight and joy possible. The Father's gift to the world is the Father's own joy and delight in the Son. Or think of this in the context of John 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave us His Son. He gave us His chief delight. He gave us His greatest joy, the greatest gift that could ever be given. So Jesus' arrival on the earth isn't just about atonement, covering our sins, necessary as that is, and certainly it's foundational to everything else that follows. But Jesus' arrival on the earth was to give us God's own joy in the person of His Son. I hope you guys have had this experience, and I bet you have. Uh, maybe gone to a restaurant or maybe gone to someone else's house and someone served you a meal or they served you a dessert or something and you tasted that and it is so good that you pause and you're like, is this really as good as I think it is? And my eyes tend to go a little wide and I stop what I'm doing because the flavor of this thing is so outstandingly good. And typically what I do is turn to the person next to me and I say, Something like, you wouldn't believe this, you have to try this. 
You've got to try this. Uh, Kathy and I were in California last summer when Rachel had her first child. And we're in California. We have been off and on for a few years because our daughters are down there. And there's this restaurant that's called Coco's. And they're all over. And Coco's Bakery Restaurant. And they're supposedly famous for their pies. And I've wanted to go to Coco's since we've been going to Southern California. I never had. But one morning, early lunch, Rachel with her baby Judah and Kathy and I, we got into Coco's. And we got the corner booth. And they ordered sandwiches or burgers or something to split. And Mike just ordered pie. That's all I was interested in. So we each got a different kind of pie. Now this was summer in California. I got fresh peach pie. And there was this peach glaze reduction drizzled across the top of it with whipped cream and the crust was just perfect. And guys, I kid you not, I, my first bite and I stopped. My world stopped. The earth stopped revolving on its axis. I was just like, I can't believe how good this And I said, you guys have to try this. You won't believe how good this is. And it was that good. And if you haven't been to Coco's, I recommend fresh peach pie. Have we had that experience where we have tasted of the Lord? This is from Psalms. Taste, taste of the Lord and see that the Lord is good. If we have, this is what we're getting at here. God is so good. Joy in Christ is so full that our experience should be like my experience with that peace pie times. That God is so good and my experience of joy in Him is so complete that I'm like, you've got to try this. You wouldn't believe how good this is. Have you had that experience? Have you been to Coco's? And if you haven't been to Coco's, have you tasted of the Lord to know that He is good? For yourself, not based on somebody else's testimony. See, now I'm sitting there in that, that uh, cubicle and, and I'm wanting to share that tasty peach pie with my daughter and my wife. But if they say, I'm not really interested, they'll never know how good Coco's peach pie really is. But if they taste for themselves, they'll know. And nobody else can tell them otherwise. And if you've never trusted Christ for yourself, you don't know how good He is. You don't know how good life can be. You need to try the Lord for yourself. If you haven't, Christmas time is a great time to entrust yourself into the care of the loving God who gave His Son, in giving His Son, gave us joy. Taste and see. Try it. You'll see. I'm not exaggerating at all. The last thing is this. Joy is for sharing. Joy is for sharing. And when I say sharing here, I'm talking about Christians who have Christ and have joy sharing the Gospel with those who don't have Christ and therefore don't have joy yet. Now, if you're in Christian circles, you may know this already, but if you want to make Christians uh, turn their gaze from you and avoid eye contact and slump, slump their shoulders and look the other way, you say either, how's your prayer life? Or you say, how are you doing with sharing the Gospel? And then the guilt truck just has just dumped on top of them and they're like, let's talk about something else, right? Because sharing the Gospel for most of us, it's terrifying. Books are written about, how do we do this? How do we do this? You know, this is the beauty. You remember those uh, shepherds in Luke 2? You know what they did? They left and they told everybody they saw about what they'd just seen. I wonder why that was. 
Now, shepherds were, were low in the, the socioeconomic scale of Palestine in that time. But they didn't care. They just went and they told others about what they had just seen and witnessed. And I'll bet that had something to do with their experience of joy. And this is the thing. Joy liberates us to talk to others about Christ. Joy liberates us to talk to others about Christ. Listen to this from 1 John 1, 3 and 4. And, and follow John's trail here. So he's talking to the early church about Jesus and he tells them why he's writing this first letter. So he says, speaking of Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, so far, so good. John says, I'm writing to you so that you'll come into our circle of influence and relationship. And by the way, we're already in relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Son. So we're pulling you into this relationship we have with each other and with the Father and the Son. And so far, that's good. That'd be enough, wouldn't it? But listen to how he concludes this thought. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. John is sharing the Gospel so that his joy would be made complete. That's a different take on evangelism, isn't it? That our experience of joy is elevated when we share the Gospel with others. John says, I'm writing for our, my, my and my group's joy. That's not about the other group at that point. He wants to pull them in. But he says, my joy is increased when I share the Gospel with you. David Jeremiah puts it this way, when our lives are filled with peace, faith, and joy, people will want to know what we have. And you know what? We'll want to tell them. If our life is filled with Christ's kind of joy, sharing the Gospel with others is easy. It's not a terror. It's not a frightful thing. When I came to Christ, I've shared my testimony many times, but I'll share part of it again here this morning. Uh, I was uh, a wreck as an unbeliever at age 19 in uh, college. And uh, if anyone had looked at my life after conversion, they probably would not have believed I was a Christian either. Transformation was very slow. I was a very slow start in my walk in the faith. But this is part of what happened. Um, I got saved, and I started reading my Bible because I met a guy at the dorm, and he said, you need to read your Bible. And it's like, okay. And so I was reading a paraphrased version then. And as I read the Bible, my eyes simply came open to the truth. And for me, Romans 12, 1 and 2, paraphrased, um, how did it go? Uh, that, that I could be transformed to be a new, different person in all I said and thought, that I didn't have to fit in somebody else's version of my... I didn't have to try to fit myself into someone else's version of life so that I could be accepted. Guys, I saw it. I got something that I had never seen before. And I was so happy I could not. I could not keep it inside myself. I didn't have to think. I didn't know what evangelism was. I was still living an immoral lifestyle. And I didn't know there was a big problem with that. And I was going to my old parties with my old friends and I was quoting Scripture because I was so jazzed about what God was showing me in His Word. 
Trans greater transformation came later. But guys, one of the first things in my life was joy because I saw truth from the Word and it was revolutionary to my life. All this, the transformation about, Mike, you can't live your life that way, that came later. Thank God it came. But I didn't have that on the front end, but I did have joy. And quoting Scripture and sharing with my friends what I was now experiencing because I had Christ it was easy. I didn't think about it. I didn't try. You couldn't keep me shut. I was overflowing. And listen, this is the thing. If you find, if I find, that talking to others about Christ is a chore, I guarantee you're not experiencing Christ's kind of joy in your life. Guys, I know too, we go through seasons of life. There are times when God's working on us, He's convicting us, and we, we just feel weighed down because God's wrestling with us in serious areas of life. And, and I'm not saying, or sorrow, right? As Christians, we're going to go through valleys of sorrow. I'm not, I'm not naysaying any of that. But if you look at the characteristic of your life and mine generally, is joy a chief characteristic? If it is, sharing the Gospel, the good news of mega-sized joy with others is not the terror we've made it. It's easy if Christ's kind of joy is alive and at work in us. So, life before Christ for me was certainly sin and error pining. I, I couldn't imagine. In fact, I've told Kathy many times, if I hadn't been saved, I don't know if I'd be alive today. I don't know if I'd be out of jail today. I, don't, I hate to think where my life would be because I was such an angry, confused guy with no purpose, no direction. Christ saved me out of that. And it's like, I get it. I have joy I never knew before. You can too. Well, winding down, Jesus is joy. Jesus has joy. Jesus gives us joy. Jesus, in part, gives us joy to overflow to those around us. A joyful life is one in relationship with Christ. In the transformation that is God's work in our life, Joy figures prominently both as a source of strength and a measure of our transformation. Back to an earlier question. So if you write your biography today, or if someone else wrote the story of your life for you, would joy be part of the title? Or would it be part of the description of your life and mine? Because it should be. Some significant way it should be. As we behold God in Christ, joy should be the fruit, one of the key fruits of that beholding. Knowing God, beholding Him makes all the difference. Our end is to share the image of God in Christ as we behold Him. And that image, especially at the season of the year we're thinking about God made flesh for our benefit, that should be the experience of joy. And that's certainly my prayer for all of us. Father, thank You for sending Your chief joy to the earth for us and that in beholding Christ and Christ in His joy, may we have that same joy. Father, I pray that You'd roll the burdens away from our hearts, our souls. Would You, Lord, enflesh in us the joy, the very joy of Christ. In His name, Amen.